0: Chapter 31 Regarding the Delectable Words That Passed Between Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, His Squire, as Well as Other Events. All this does not displease me. Go on, said Don Quixote. When you arrived, what was that Queen of Beauty doing? Surely you found her stringing pearls? Or embroidering some heraldic device in gold thread for this her captive knight? I didn't find her doing anything, responded Sancho except winnowing two fanegas of wheat in a corral of her house. Well, you may be sure, said Don Quixote, that, touched by her hands, the grains of wheat were pearls. And did you notice, my friend, if it was white wheat or ordinary spring wheat? It was just buckwheat, responded Sancho. Well, I assure you, said Don Quixote, that winnowed by her hands it undoubtedly made the finest white bread. But go on. When you gave her my letter, did she kiss it? Did she place it on her head? Did she engage in some ceremony worthy of such a letter? What did she do? When I was about to give it to her, responded Sancho, she was in the middle of shaking a good part of the wheat that she had in the sieve, and she said to me, Friend, put the letter on that sack. I can't read it until I finish sifting everything I have here. Wise lady, said Don Quixote. That must have been so that she could read it slowly and savor it. Go on, Sancho. "'And while she was engaged in her task, what discourse did she have with you? "'What did she ask about me? And you, what did you respond? "'Come, tell me everything. Do not leave even a half-note in the inkwell.' "'She didn't ask me anything,' said Sancho. "'But I told her how your grace to serve her was doing penance, "'naked from the waist up here in this Sierra like a savage, "'sleeping on the ground, not eating your bread from a cloth, "'or combing your beard, crying and cursing your fate.' When you said that I cursed my fate, you misspoke, said Don Quixote. Rather, I bless it, and shall bless it, all the days of my life, for making me worthy of loving so high a lady as Dulcinea of Toboso. She's so high, responded Sancho, that by my faith she's a whole span taller than I am. How do you know, Sancho? said Don Quixote. Did you measure yourself against her? I measured myself this way responded Sancho, when I went over to her to help her load a sack of wheat onto a donkey. We were so close that I could see she was a good span taller than me. Well, it is true, replied Don Quixote, that her great height is accompanied and adorned by a thousand million graces of the soul. But there is one thing you will not deny, Sancho, when you approached her. Did you not smell the perfume of Sheba, an aromatic, somehow pleasing fragrance whose name I cannot recall? I mean, an essence or scent as if you were in the shop of some rare glover. What I can say, said Sancho, is that I smelled a mannish kind of odor, and it must have been that with all that moving around she was sweaty and sort of sour. That could not be, responded Don Quixote. You must have had a head cold, or else you were smelling yourself.' because I know very well the fragrance of that rose among thorns, that lily of the field, that delicate liquid ambergris. That may be, responded Sancho, because very often the same smell comes from me, though at the time I thought it was coming from her grace, the Lady Dulcinea, but there's no reason to be surprised, since one devil looks like another. All right, then. Don Quixote went on. She finished sifting the wheat and sent it to the mill. What did she do when she read the letter? She didn't read the letter, said Sancho, because she said she didn't know how to read or write. Instead, she tore it into tiny pieces, saying that she didn't want to give it to anybody else to read because she didn't want people in the village knowing her secrets. And she was satisfied with what I had told her about the love your Grace had for her and the special penance you were doing for her sake. Finally, she told me to tell your Grace that she kissed your hands... "'and had more desire to see you than to write to you, "'and so she begged and commanded, in view of your letter, "'that you leave these wild places and stop doing crazy things, "'and set out right away for Toboso "'if something more important didn't come along, "'because she wanted to see your grace very much. "'She laughed a lot when I told her that your grace was called "'the Knight of the Sorrowful Face. "'I asked her if the Basque we met so long ago had come there, "'and she said he had.' And that he was a very fine man. I also asked her about the galley slaves, but she said that so far she hadn't seen a single one. Everything is fine to this point, said Don Quixote. But tell me, when she said goodbye, "'What jewel did she give you as a reward for the news of me that you brought to her? "'Because it is a traditional and ancient custom among knights-errant and their ladies "'to give the squires, maidens, or dwarves who bring the knights' news of their ladies "'or the ladies' news of their knights, the gift of a precious jewel in gratitude for the message.' "'That may be true, and I think it's a good custom, but that must have been in the past. "'Nowadays the custom must be just to give a piece of bread and some cheese.' For that's what my Lady Dulcinea handed me over the coral fence when she said good-bye. And it even looked like the cheese was made of sheep's milk. She is liberal in the extreme, said Don Quixote. And if she did not present you with a jewel of gold, no doubt it was because she did not have one near at hand. But it is never the wrong time for a gift. I shall see her, and you will have your reward. Do you know what astounds me, Sancho? It seems to me that you flew there and back because it has taken you a little more than three days to go to Toboso and come back here again, a distance of more than thirty leagues. Which leads me to believe that the wise necromancer who watches over my affairs and is my friend, because perforce there is one, there must be one, else I should not be a good knight errant, I say that he must have helped you on your journey without your realizing it. For there are wise men who pick up a knight-errant sleeping in his bed, and without his knowing how or by what means, the knight awakens the following day more than a thousand leagues distant from where he went to sleep. If not for this, knights-errant could not help each other when they are in danger, as they do constantly. For one may be doing battle in the mountains of Armenia with a dragon or a fierce monster or another knight, and matters are going badly for him and he is on the point of death, and then, when you least expect it, Another knight appears on a cloud or in a chariot of fire. A knight who is his friend and was in England just a short while before, and who comes to his aid and saves him from death, and that knight finds himself at home, enjoying his supper. And the distance between the two places is usually two or three thousand leagues. All of this is accomplished through the skill and wisdom of the wise enchanters who watch over these valiant knights. And so, Sancho, my friend... It is not difficult for me to believe that you have travelled back and forth in so short a time between here and Toboso, for, as I have said, some friendly sorcerer must have carried you through the air without your realising it. That must be it, said Sancho, because, by my faith, Rocinante was galloping like a gypsy's donkey with Quicksilver in its ear. And not just Quicksilver. "'said Don Quixote, but a legion of demons, too, "'who can run and make others run without growing tired whenever they want to. "'But, leaving that aside, "'what do you think I ought to do now "'with regard to my lady commanding that I go to see her? "'For although it is clear that I am obliged to obey her command, "'I am also prevented from doing so "'by the boon I have promised to the princess who is travelling with us. "'And the law of chivalry demands that I keep my word before I satisfy my wishes.' On the one hand, I am pursued and hounded by the desire to see my lady. On the other, I am stirred and called by the promise I have made and the glory I shall gain in this undertaking. But what I intend to do is to travel swiftly and come without delay to the place where this giant is, and as soon as I arrive I shall cut off his head and restore the princess peacefully to her kingdom and immediately return to see the light that illumines my senses. And to her... "'I shall give such excuses that she will come to consider my delay as a good thing, "'for she will see that it all redounds to her greater glory and fame. "'For everything I have achieved, achieved now, "'and shall achieve by force of arms in this life, "'comes to me because she favours me, "'and because I am hers.' "'Oh,' said Sancho, "'those ideas of yours do you so much harm.' "'Tell me, senor, does your grace intend to make this trip for nothing, "'and let slip away and lose a marriage as profitable and distinguished as this one, "'where the dowry is a kingdom? "'The truth is I have heard it's more than twenty thousand leagues around, "'and overflowing with all the things needed to sustain human life, "'and bigger than Portugal and Castilla together. "'Be quiet for the love of God and shame at what you've said.' And take my advice, and forgive me, and get married, right away, in the first town where there's a priest. Or else, here's our own licentiate, and he'll do a wonderful job. Remember that I'm old enough to give advice, and the advice I'm giving you now is exactly right, and a bird in the hand is better than a vulture in the air. And if you have something good, and choose something evil, you can't complain about the good that happens to you. Look, Sancho, responded Don Quixote. If your advice to marry is because I shall become king when I kill the giant, and can easily grant you favors and give you what I have promised, you should know that without marrying I shall be able to satisfy your desire because I shall request as my reward, before I go into battle, that when I emerge victorious, even though I do not marry, I shall be given part of the kingdom and then may give it to whomever I wish. And when they have given it to me, to whom shall I give it? but to you. That's clear enough, responded Sancho. But your grace should be sure to choose the part along the coast, because if I'm not happy with the life, I can put my black vassals on a ship and do with them the things I said I would do. Your grace shouldn't take the time to see my lady Dulcinea now. You ought to go and kill the giant. And let's finish up this business, because, by God, it seems to me, there's a lot of honor and profit in it. I say to you, Sancho, said Don Quixote, that you are correct, and I shall take your advice with regard to going with the princess before I see Dulcinea. I warn you not to say anything to anyone, not even those who are with us, regarding what we have discussed and deliberated upon. For since Dulcinea is so modest and does not wish her thoughts to be known, it would not be right for me or anyone speaking for me to reveal them. Well, if that's true, said Sancho, "'Why does your grace make all those vanquished by your arm "'present themselves before my lady Dulcinea "'when that's as sure as your signature that you love and serve her? "'And since they have to fall to their knees in her presence "'and say that they've been sent by your grace to be her servant, "'how can her thoughts or yours be hidden? "'Oh, how foolish and simple you are!' "'Said Don Quixote. "'Do you not see, Sancho, "'that all of this redounds to her greater glory?' because you should know that in our style of chivalry it is a great honor for a lady to have many knights-errant who serve her, and whose thoughts go no further than to serve her simply because she is who she is, not hoping for any other reward for their many and virtuous desires, but that she be willing to accept them as her knights. That's the way, said Sancho. I've heard it said in sermons we should love our lord for himself alone. "'not because we hope for glory or are afraid of punishment. "'But I'd rather love and serve him for what he can do.' "'Devil take you for a peasant,' said Don Quixote. "'What intelligent things you say sometimes. "'One would think you had studied.' "'By my faith, I don't know how to read,' responded Sancho. "'At this point, Master Nicolás called to them to wait "'because the others wanted to stop and drink at a small spring.' Don Quixote stopped, much to Sancho's delight. He was tired of telling so many lies and feared that his master would catch him in one, for although he knew that Dulcinea was a peasant from Toboso, he had never seen her in his life. Cardenio, in the meantime, had put on the clothes worn by Dorotea when they found her, and although they were not very good, they were much better than the ones he discarded. They dismounted beside the spring, and with the food the priest had acquired at the inn, they managed to satisfy, to some extent, the great hunger they all felt. As they were eating, a boy, travelling along the road, happened to pass by, and he began to look very carefully at the people around the spring, and then he ran to Don Quixote, threw his arms around his legs, and burst into tears, saying, Oh, senor, doesn't your grace know me? Look closely, I'm Andres, the boy your grace freed from the oak tree where I was tied. Don Quixote recognised him, "'and grasping him by the hand, he turned to his companions and said, "'So that your graces may see how important it is "'that there be knights errant in the world "'to right the wrongs and offences committed "'by the insolent and evil men who live in it, "'your graces should know that some days ago, "'as I was passing through a wood, "'I heard shouts and very pitiful cries "'that seemed to come from a person in distress and in need. "'Moved by my obligation,' I immediately went to the place from which the heart-rending cries seemed to come. And there I found this boy, tied to an oak. And now you see him before you, which pleases my soul, because he will be a witness who will not allow me to lie. I say that he was tied to the oak, naked from the waist up, and a peasant, who I learned later was his master, was beating him with the reins of his mare. As soon as I saw this, I asked the reason for so savage a thrashing. The villain replied that he was beating him because he was his servant, and that certain of his careless acts were more a question of thievery than simple-mindedness, to which this child said, Senor, he's only beating me because I asked for my wages. The master answered with all kinds of arguments and excuses which I heard, but did not believe. In short, I obliged the peasant to untie him, "'and made him swear that he would take him back with him "'and pay him one real after another, even more than he owed. "'Is this not true, Andres, my son? "'Did you not notice how forcefully I commanded him "'and how humbly he promised to do everything I ordered him "'and told him and wanted him to do? "'Respond, do not be shy or hesitant about anything. "'Tell these gentlefolk what happened, "'so that they may see and consider the benefit, as I say, "'of having knight-errant wandering the roads.' "'Everything that your grace has said is very true,' responded the boy. "'But the matter ended in a way that was very different from what your grace imagines.' "'What do you mean different?' replied Don Quixote. "'Do you mean the peasant did not pay you?' "'He not only didn't pay me,' responded the boy, "'but as soon as your grace crossed the wood and we were alone, "'he tied me to the same oak tree again and gave me so many more lashes "'that I was flayed like St. Bartholomew. "'And with each lash he mocked you and made a joke about how he had fooled your grace.' And if I hadn't been feeling so much pain, I'd have laughed at what he said, but the fact is he raised so many welts that until now I've been in a hospital because of the harm that wicked peasant did to me. Your grace is to blame for everything, because if you had continued on your way and not come when nobody was calling you or mixed into other people's business, my master would have been satisfied with giving me one or two dozen lashes, and then he would have let me go and paid me what he owed me. But your grace dishonored him for no reason and called him so many names that he lost his temper, and since he couldn't take his revenge on your grace, when we were alone, he vented his anger on me, so that it seems to me I won't be the same man again for the rest of my life. The mistake, said Don Quixote, was in my leaving, for I should not have gone until you were paid. I ought to have known from long experience that no peasant keeps his word if he sees that it is not to his advantage to do so. But remember, Andres, I swore that if he did not pay you I would go in search of him and find him even if he hid in the belly of the whale. That's true, said Andres, but it didn't do any good. Now you will tell me if it does, said Don Quixote. And having said this, he stood up very quickly and ordered Sancho to put the bridle on Rocinante, who was grazing while they ate. Dorotea asked what he intended to do. He responded that he wanted to find the peasant and punish him for behaving so badly and oblige him to pay Andres down to the last Maravedi, in spite of and despite all the peasants in the world. To which she responded that according to the boon he had promised, he could not become involved in any other enterprise until hers was concluded. And since he knew this better than anyone, he must hold his fury in check until he returned from her kingdom. That is true, responded Don Quixote, and it is necessary for Andres to be patient until my return, as you, Senora, have said. To him I vow and promise again that I shall not rest until I see him avenged and paid. I don't believe those vows, said Andres. I'd rather have enough to get to Sevilla than all the revenge in the world. If you can spare it, give me some food to take with me. "'and God bless your grace, and all the other knights errant, "'and I hope they're errant enough to find a punishment as good as the one I got.' "'Sancho took a piece of bread and some cheese from his bag, "'and handing them to the boy, he said, "'Take this, brother Andres, for all of us have a part in your misfortune.' "'Which part do you have?' asked Andres. "'This part, the cheese and bread I'm giving you,' responded Sancho, "'for God only knows if I'll need it or not, because I'm telling you, my friend.' "'The squires of knights, errant are subject to a good deal of hunger and misfortune, "'and even other things that are felt more easily than said.' "'Andres took the bread and cheese, "'and seeing that no one gave him anything else, he lowered his head "'and, as they say, seized the road with both hands. "'It is certainly true that when he left, he said to Don Quixote, "'For the love of God, Senor Knight errant, if you ever run into me again,' Even if you see them chopping me to pieces, don't help me and don't come to my aid. But leave me alone with my misfortune, no matter how bad it is. It won't be worse than what will happen to me when I'm helped by your grace, and may God curse you and all the knights-errant ever born in this world. Don Quixote was about to get up to punish him, but Andres began running so quickly that no one even attempted to follow him. Don Quixote was mortified by Andres's story and it was necessary for the others to be very careful not to laugh so as not to mortify him completely. Chapter 32 Which recounts what occurred in the inn to the companions of Don Quixote. They finished their meal, saddled their mounts, and without anything worth relating happening to them, On the following day they reached the inn that was the terror and fear of Sancho Panza. But although he would have preferred not to go in, he could not avoid it. The innkeeper's wife, the innkeeper, their daughter, and Maritornes saw Don Quixote and Sancho arriving, and they went out to receive them with displays of great joy. Don Quixote greeted them in a grave and solemn tone and told them to prepare a better bed for him than they had the last time to which the innkeeper's wife responded that if he paid better than he had the last time, she would provide him with a bed worthy of a prince. Don Quixote said he would, and therefore they prepared a reasonable one for him in the same attic where he had been previously, and he lay down immediately because he felt weakened and dejected. No sooner had he closed the door than the innkeeper's wife rushed at the barber, seized him by the beard, and said, "'Upon my soul, you can't go on using my oxtail for a beard.' and you have to give the tail back to me. It's a shame to see that thing of my husband's on the floor. I mean the comb that I always hung on my nice tail. The barber refused to give it to her, no matter how hard she pulled, until the licentiate told him to return it, for it was no longer necessary to use the disguise. He could show and reveal himself as he was, and tell Don Quixote that when the thieving galley slaves robbed him, he had fled to this inn.' If the knight should ask about the princess's squire, they would say she had sent him ahead to inform the people of her kingdom that she was on her way and was bringing their liberator with her. When he heard this, the barber willingly returned the tale to the innkeeper's wife, along with all the other articles they had borrowed for their rescue of Don Quixote. Everyone in the inn was astonished at the beauty of Dorotea and at the fine appearance of young Cardenio. The priest had them prepare whatever food was available at the inn, and the innkeeper, hoping for better payment, quickly prepared a reasonable meal. Don Quixote slept all this time, and they agreed not to wake him because for the moment he needed sleep more than food. During the meal, in the presence of the innkeeper, his wife, their daughter, Maritornis, and the other travellers, they spoke of the strange madness of Don Quixote and the manner in which they had found him. "'The innkeeper's wife recounted what had happened with him and the mule-driver, "'and after looking around for Sancho and not seeing him, "'she told them about his tossing in the blanket, "'which caused them no small amusement. "'When the priest said that the books of chivalry that Don Quixote read "'had made him lose his wits, the innkeeper said, "'I don't know how that can be. "'The truth is, to my mind, there's no better reading in the world. "'I have two or three of them, along with some other papers.' and they really have put life into me, and not only me, but other people, too. Because during the harvest, many of the harvesters gather here during their time off, and there's always a few who know how to read, and one of them takes down one of those books, and more than thirty of us sit around him and listen to him read with so much pleasure that it saves us a thousand grey hairs. At least, as far as I'm concerned, I can tell you that when I hear about those furious, terrible blows struck by the knights, it makes me want to do the same.' and I'd be happy to keep hearing about them for days and nights on end. The same goes for me, said the innkeeper's wife, because I never have any peace in my house except when you're listening to somebody read. You get so caught up that you forget about arguing with me. That's true said Maritornes, and by my faith I really like to hear those things, too. They're very pretty, especially when they tell about a lady under some orange trees, in the arms of her knight, and a duenna's there look out, and she's dying of envy and scared to death. I think all that's as sweet as honey. And you, young lady, what do you think of them? asked the priest, speaking to the innkeeper's daughter. Upon my soul I don't know, senor, she responded. I listen, too, and the truth is that even if I don't understand them, I like to hear them— "'but I don't like all the fighting that my father likes. "'I like the laments of the knights "'when they're absent from their ladies. "'The truth is that sometimes they make me cry. "'I feel so sorry for them.' "'Then, young lady, would you offer them relief?' "'said Dorothea. if they were weeping on your account.' "'I don't know what I'd do,' the girl responded. "'All I know is that some of those ladies are so cruel "'that their knights call them tigers and lions "'and a thousand other indecent things.' "'And, sweet Jesus, I don't know what kind of people can be so heartless and unfeeling "'that they don't look at an honourable man and let him die or lose his mind. "'I don't know the reason for so much stiffness. "'If they're so virtuous, let them marry, which is just what their knights want.' "'Be quiet, girl,' said the innkeeper's wife. "'You seem to know a lot about these things, "'and it's not right for young girls to know or talk so much.' "'Since the gentleman asked me,' she responded, "'I had to answer.' Well, now, said the priest, innkeeper, bring me those books. I'd like to see them. I'd be glad to, he responded. He entered his room and brought out an old travelling case, locked with a small chain. And when it was opened, the priest found three large books and some papers written in a very fine hand. He opened the first book and saw that it was Don Cyrongilio of Thrace, and the second was Felix Marte of Ircania, and the third, the history of the great Captain Gonzalo Hernández de Córdoba and the life of Diego García de Paredes. As soon as the priest read the first two titles, he turned to the barber and said, Our friend's housekeeper and his niece are the people we need here now. We don't need them, responded the barber. I also know how to take them to the corral or the hearth, where there's a good fire burning. Then your grace wants to burn my books, said the innkeeper. Only these two, said the priest Don Cirongilio and Felix Marte. Well, said the innkeeper, by any chance are my books heretical or phlegmatic? Is that why you want to burn them? "'Sismatic is what you mean, friend, said the barber, not phlegmatic. That's right, replied the innkeeper. But if you want to burn one, let it be the one about the great captain and that Diego Garcia. I'd rather let a child of mine be burned than either one of the others. Dear brother, said the priest, these two books are false and full of foolishness and nonsense. But this one about the great captain is truthful history and tells the accomplishments of Gonzalo Hernández of Córdoba, who, because of his many great feats, deserved to be called great captain by everyone, a famous and illustrious name deserved by him alone. Diego García de Paredes was a distinguished nobleman and native of the city of Trujillo in Extremadura, a very courageous soldier and so strong that with one finger he could stop a mill-wheel as it turned. Standing with a broadsword at the entrance to a bridge, he brought an immense army to a halt and would not permit them to cross. And he did other comparable things, and he recounts them and writes about them himself. With the modesty of a gentleman writing his own chronicle, but if another were to write about those feats freely and dispassionately, they would relegate all the deeds of Hector, Achilles, and Roland to oblivion. "'Show those trifles to my old father,' said the innkeeper. "'Look at what amazes you, stopping a mill-wheel. "'By God, now your grace ought to read what Felix Marty of Ircania did, "'when with one reverse stroke he split five giants down to the waist "'like the dolls children make out of beans. "'Another time he attacked a huge, powerful army "'that had more than a million six hundred thousand soldiers, "'all of them armed from head to foot, "'and he routed them like herds of sheep.' "'And what would you say of the good Don Cirongilio of Thrace, "'who was so valiant and brave, as you can see in the book, "'where it tells us that once when he was sailing down a river, "'a fiery serpent rose up from the water, "'and as soon as he saw it, he attacked it and straddled it "'right across its scaly shoulders, and with both hands "'he squeezed its throat so tight that the serpent, "'seeing that he was being strangled, "'could only dive down to the bottom of the river, "'taking with him the knight who wouldn't let him go.' And when they got down there, he found himself in palaces and gardens that were so pretty, they were a marvel to see, and then the serpent turned into an old, old man who told him so many things, it was really something to hear. Be quiet, senor, because if you heard this, you'd go mad with pleasure. I don't give two figs for the great captain or that Diego Garcia. When Dorotea heard this, she said very quietly to Cardenio, Our host doesn't have far to go to be a second Don Quixote. I agree, responded Cardenio. According to what he says, he believes that everything these books say really happened, just as written. And not even discalced friars could make him think otherwise. Listen, my dear brother, the priest said again. There never was a Felix Marte of in this world, or a Don Seron Helio of Thrace, or any other knights like them that the books of chivalry tell about, because it is all fiction— "'made up by idle minds composed to create the effect you mentioned, "'to while away the time just as your harvesters amuse themselves by reading them. "'Really, I swear to you, there never were knights like these in the world, "'and their great deeds and all that other nonsense never happened. "'Throw that bone to another dog,' responded the innkeeper, "'as if I didn't know how to add two and three or where my shoe pinches. Your grace shouldn't try to treat me like a child because, by God, I'm not an idiot.' "'That's really something. Your Grace wants me to think that everything these good books say is foolishness and lies "'when they've been printed with the permission of the gentlemen on the Royal Council. "'As if they were the kind of people who'd allow the printing of so many lies, "'and so many battles and so many enchantments, it could drive you crazy.' "'I have already told you, my friend,' replied the priest, "'that these books are intended to amuse our minds in moments of idleness.' just as in well-ordered nations, games such as chess and ball and billiards are permitted for the entertainment of those who do not have to or should not or cannot work. The printing of such books is also permitted on the assumption, which is true, that no one will be so ignorant as to mistake any of these books for true history. If it were correct for me to do so now, and those present were to request it, I would have something to say about the characteristics that books of chivalry ought to have in order to be good books. And perhaps it would be advantageous and even pleasurable for some, but I hope the time will come when I may communicate this to someone who can remedy it. In the meantime, you should believe, senor Innkeeper, what I have told you, and take your books and decide on their truths or lies, and much good may they do you. God willing, you won't follow in the footsteps of your guest, Don Quixote. "'I won't,' responded the innkeeper, "'because I wouldn't be crazy enough to become a knight-errant. "'I see very well that these days are different from the old days, "'when they say those famous knights wandered through the world.' "'Sancho had returned in the middle of this conversation "'and was left very confused and bewildered "'when he heard that nowadays there were no more knights-errant, "'and that all the books of chivalry were foolish lies, "'and he resolved in his heart... "'to wait and see the outcome of the journey his master was about to take. "'If it did not turn out as well as he hoped, "'he was determined to leave "'and go back to his wife and his children and his customary work. "'The innkeeper picked up the case and the books, "'but the priest said, "'Wait, I want to see the papers that are written in such a fine hand. "'The innkeeper took them out and gave them to him to read.' and the priest saw up to eight full sheets of paper written by hand, and at the beginning was the title in large letters, The Novel of the Man Who Was Recklessly Curious. The priest read three or four lines to himself and said, The title of this novel certainly doesn't seem bad, and I think I would like to read all of it. To which the innkeeper responded, Well, your reverence can certainly read it, and you should know that some guests who read it here liked it very much and asked to have it over and over again, but I wouldn't give it to them, because I planned to return it to the man who left this case here by mistake, along with the books and papers. Their owner might come back here one day, and though I know I'll miss the books, by my faith I'm going to give them back. I may be an innkeeper, but I'm still a Christian. You are absolutely right, my friend, said the priest, but even so, if I like the novel, you must allow me to copy it. I'll be happy to, responded the innkeeper. While the two men were conversing, Cardenio had picked up the novel and begun to read it. And being of the same opinion as the priest, he asked him to read it aloud so that all of them could hear it. "'I would gladly read it,' said the priest. "'But it might be better to spend this time sleeping rather than reading.' "'It will be very restful for me,' said Dorotea, "'to spend the time listening to a story, for my spirit is not yet calm enough to let me sleep at the customary time.' "'In that case,' said the priest. I do want to read it, if only out of curiosity. Perhaps it will have something both pleasing and unusual. Master Nicolás made the same request, and so did Sancho. Seeing this, and thinking that by reading aloud he would both give and receive pleasure, the priest said, Well, then, pay careful attention, for this is how the novel begins. Chapter 33, which recounts the novel of The Man Who Was Recklessly Curious. In Florence, a rich and famous Italian city in the province called Tuscany, lived two wealthy, eminent gentlemen who were such good friends that they were known by everyone as The Two Friends. They were bachelors, young men who were of the same age and habits all of which was sufficient cause for both of them to feel a mutual reciprocal friendship. True, Anselmo was somewhat more inclined to amorous pursuits than Lotario, whose preferred pastime was the hunt. But when the occasion presented itself, Anselmo would leave his pleasure to follow those of Lotario, and Lotario would leave his to pursue those of Anselmo, and in this fashion their desires were so attuned. "'that her well-adjusted clock did not run as well. "'Anselmo was deeply in love "'with a distinguished and beautiful girl from the same city, "'the daughter of such excellent parents "'and so excellent in and of herself, "'that he decided, with his friend Lotario's agreement, "'without which he did nothing, "'to ask her parents for her hand, which he did. "'His intermediary was Lotario, "'and he concluded the arrangements "'so successfully for his friend,' That in a short time Anselmo found himself in possession of what he desired. Camilla was so happy at having Anselmo for a husband that she unceasingly gave her thanks to heaven and to Lotario, through whose intervention so much contentment had come to her. In the first days of the nuptial celebrations, which are always filled with joy, Lotario continued to visit the house of his friend Anselmo as he had before, wishing to honor him congratulate him and rejoice with him in every way he could. But when the celebrations were over, and the frequency of visits and congratulations had diminished, Lotario carefully began to reduce the number of his visits to Anselmo's house. For it seemed to him, as it reasonably would seem to all discerning people, that one should not visit or linger at the houses of married friends as if both were still single, although good and true friendship cannot and should not be suspect for any reason. The honour of the married man is so delicate that it apparently can be offended even by his own brothers, let alone his friends. Anselmo noticed Lothario's withdrawal and complained to him bitterly, saying that if he had known that matrimony meant they could not communicate as they once had, he never would have married, and if the good relations the two of them had enjoyed when he was a bachelor had earned them the sweet name of the two friends, then he would not merely for the sake of appearing circumspect and for no other reason, permit so well-known and amiable a name to be lost. Therefore he begged Lotario, if such a term could legitimately be used between them, that he make Anselmo's house his own again, and come and go as he had before, assuring him that his wife Camilla had no wish or desire other than what he wanted her to have. And she, knowing how truly the two men had loved each other, was bewildered at seeing him so aloof. To these and the many other arguments that Anselmo used to persuade Lotario to visit his house as he had in the past, Lotario responded with so much prudence, discretion, and discernment that Anselmo was satisfied with his friend's good intentions, and they agreed that twice a week and on feast days, Lotario would eat with Anselmo in his house, and although this was their agreement, Lotario resolved to do no more than what he thought would enhance the honor of his friend, whose reputation he valued more than he did his own. He said, and rightly so, that the man to whom heaven has granted a beautiful wife had to be as careful about the friends he brought home as he was about the women with whom his wife associated, because those things not done or arranged on open squares or in temples— or at public festivals, or on devotional visits to churches, activities that husbands may not always deny to their wives, can be arranged and expedited in the house of her most trusted friend or kinswoman. Lotario also said that a married man needed to have a friend who would alert him to any negligence in his behavior, since it often happens that because of the great love the husband has for his wife— and his desire not to distress her, he does not warn or tell her to do or not do certain things that could either redound to his honor or cause his censure. But being advised by his friend, he could easily resolve everything. Where could one find a friend as discerning and loyal and true as the one described by Lotario? Certainly, I do not know. Lotario alone was the kind of friend who, with utmost care and solicitude, looked after his friend's honour and wished to lessen, reduce and diminish the number of days he went to his house so that it would not seem amiss to the idle crowd and its wandering, malicious eyes that a wealthy, noble and well-born young man, possessing the other good qualities he believed he had, habitually visited the house of a woman as beautiful as Camilla. Although her virtue and modesty could put a stop to any malicious tongue, he did not want any doubts cast on her good name or his friends. As a consequence, on most of the visiting days that they had agreed upon, he was occupied and involved in other matters that he claimed were unavoidable. And so a large portion of the time they did spend together was devoted to the complaints of one friend and the excuses of the other. As it happened on one of these occasions— when the two men were walking through a meadow outside the city, Anselmo said these words to Lotario: "'Did you think, Lotario, my friend, that I cannot respond with gratitude that matches the bounty I have received? The mercies God has shown in making me the son of parents such as mine, and granting me with so generous a hand so many advantages, in what is called nature as well as in fortune, and especially his granting me you as a friend?' and Camilla as my wife, two treasures I esteem, if not as much as I ought to, at least as much as I can. Yet, despite all these elements that usually make up the whole that allows men to live happily, I am the most desperate and discontented man in the entire world, because for some days now I have been troubled and pursued by a desire so strange and out of the ordinary that I am amazed at myself and blame and reprimand myself, and attempt to silence it and hide it away from my thoughts, though I have been no more capable of keeping it secret than if my intention actually had been to reveal it to the entire world. And since, in fact, it must be made public, I want to confide and entrust it to you, certain that with the effort you make as my true friend to cure me, I soon shall find myself free of the anguish it causes me, and my joy at your solicitude will be as great as my unhappiness at my own madness. Anselmo's words left Lotario perplexed, and he did not know where so long an introduction or preamble would lead. And although in his imagination he pondered what the desire could be that was troubling his friend, he never hit the mark of the truth. And in order to quickly end the torment that this uncertainty caused him, Lotario said that it was manifestly insulting to their great friendship for Anselmo to go through so many preliminaries before telling him his most secret thoughts. For he was certain he could promise either the advice that would make them bearable, or the remedy that would end them. "'What you say is true,' responded Anselmo. "'And with that confidence I will tell you, friend Lotario." that the desire that plagues me is my wondering if Camilla, my wife, is as good and perfect as I think she is. And I cannot learn the truth except by testing her so that the test reveals the worth of her virtue as fire shows the worth of gold. Because it seems to me, dear friend, that a woman is not virtuous if she is not solicited and that she alone is strong who does not bend to promises, gifts, tears, and the constant importunities of lovers who woo her. Why be grateful when a woman is good, he said, if no one urges her to be bad? Why is it of consequence that she is shy and reserved if she does not have the occasion to lose her restraint and knows she has a husband who, at her first rash act, would take her life? In short, I do not hold the woman who is virtuous because of fear or lack of opportunity in the same esteem as the one who is courted and pursued and emerges wearing the victor's crown. For these reasons, and many others I could mention that support and strengthen this opinion, my desire is for Camilla, my wife, to pass through these difficulties and be refined and prove her value in the fire of being wooed and courted by one worthy of desiring her, and if she emerges, as I believe she will, triumphant from this battle, I shall deem my good fortune unparalleled. I shall be able to say that the cup of my desires is filled to overflowing. I shall say that it fell to me to have a wife strong in virtue, about whom the wise man says, Who will find her? And if the outcome is the contrary of what I expect... The pleasure of seeing that I was correct in my opinion will allow me to bear the sorrow that my costly experiment may reasonably cost me. And, because you can say many things against my desire, but none will succeed in stopping me from realizing it, I want you, my dear friend Lotario, to agree to be the instrument that will effect this plan born of my desire. I shall give you the opportunity to do so, and provide you with everything I think necessary for wooing a woman who is virtuous, honorable, reserved, and not mercenary. Among other reasons, I am moved to entrust you with this arduous undertaking, because I know that if Camilla is conquered by you, you will not carry the conquest to its conclusion.' it will do only what has to be done according to our agreement, and I shall not be offended except in desire, and the offence will remain hidden in the virtue of your silence. For I know very well that in any matter having to do with me, it will be as eternal as the silence of death. Therefore, if you want me to have a life that can be called a life, you must enter into this amorous battle not in a lukewarm or dilatory fashion, but with the zeal and diligence. "'that my desire demands, "'and with the trust assured me by our friendship.' "'These were the words that Anselmo said to Lotario, "'who listened so attentively to all of them "'that except for those that have been recorded here, "'none passed his lips until Anselmo had finished. "'Seeing that he had nothing else to say, "'and after looking at him for a long time "'as if he were looking at something amazing and terrifying "'that he had never seen before,' "'Lotario said, "'I cannot persuade myself, "'oh, my dear friend Anselmo, "'that the things you have said are not a joke. "'If I had thought you were speaking in earnest, "'I would not have allowed you to go so far, "'and if I had stopped listening, "'I would have forestalled your long impassioned speech. "'It surely seems to me that you don't know me, "'or I don't know you. "'But no, I know very well that you are, Anselmo, "'and you know that I am Lotario. "'The problem is that I think— You are not the Anselmo you used to be. And you must have thought I was not the same lotario either, because the things you have said to me would not have been said by my friend Anselmo. And what you have asked of me would not have been asked of the lotario you knew. Good friends make test their friends and make use of them, as a poet said, which means that they must not make use of their friendship in things that go against God. If a pagan felt this about friendship, how much more important is it for a Christian to feel the same, for he knows that divine friendship must not be lost for the sake of human friendship. When a friend goes so far as to set aside the demands of heaven in order to respond to those of his friend, it should not be for vain, trivial things, but for those on which the honor and life of his friend depend. Well, Anselmo, tell me now which of these is threatened, so that I can dare oblige you and do something as detestable as what you are asking. Neither one, certainly. Rather, if I understand you, you are asking me to attempt and endeavor to take away your honor and your life, and mine as well. Because if I attempt to take away your honor, it is obvious that I take away your life, for the man without honor is worse than dead, and if, as you wish, I become the instrument that inflicts so much evil upon you do I not lose my honour and, by the same token, my life? Listen, Anselmo, my friend, and have the patience not to respond until I finish telling you what I think of the demands your desire has made of you. There will be time for you to reply and for me to listen. Gladly, said Anselmo, say whatever you wish. And Otario continued, saying, It seems to me, my dear Anselmo, that your mind is now in the state in which the Moors have theirs. For they cannot be made to understand the error of their sect with commentaries from Holy Scripture or arguments that depend on the rational understanding or are founded on articles of faith. Instead, they must be presented with palpable, comprehensible, intelligible, demonstrable, indubitable examples with mathematical proofs that cannot be denied. As when one says, if... From two equal parts we remove equal parts, those parts that remain are also equal. If they do not understand the words, as in fact they do not, then it must be shown to them with one's hands and placed before their eyes, yet even after all this no one can persuade them of the truths of my holy religion. I must use the same terms and methods with you, because the desire that has been born in you is so misguided and so far beyond everything that has a shred of rationality in it, that I think it would be a waste of time to try to make you understand your foolishness. For the moment I do not wish to give it another name. I am even tempted to leave you to your folly as punishment for your wicked desire, but my friendship for you does not permit me to be so harsh that I leave you in obvious danger of perdition. And so that you can see it clearly, tell me, Anselmo, haven't you told me, that I have to woo a reserved woman, persuade an honest woman, make offers to an unmercenary woman, serve a prudent woman? Yes, you have said that to me. But if you know you have a wife who is reserved, honest, unmercenary, and prudent, what else do you need to know? And if you believe she will emerge victorious from all my assaults, as she undoubtedly will, what designations do you plan to give her afterward that are better than the ones she has now? What will she be afterward that is better than what she is now? Either your opinion of her is not what you say it is, or you do not know what you are asking. If your opinion of her is not what you say it is, why do you want to test her instead of treating her as an unfaithful woman and chastising her as you see fit? But if she is as virtuous as you believe, it would be reckless to experiment with that truth, for when you have done so it will still have the same value it had before. Therefore, we must conclude that attempting actions more likely to harm us than to benefit us is characteristic of rash minds bereft of reason, especially when they are not forced or compelled to undertake them, and when even from a distance it is obvious that the venture is an act of patent madness. One attempts extremely difficult enterprises for the sake of God, or for the sake of the world, or both. Those attempted for God are the ones undertaken by the saints who endeavor to live the lives of angels in human bodies. Those attempted with the world in mind are undertaken by men who endure such infinite seas, diverse climates, and strange peoples in order to acquire great riches. And those ventured for God and the world together are undertaken by valiant soldiers who, as soon as they see in the enemy defenses an opening no larger than the one made by a cannonball, set aside all fear, do not consider or notice the clear danger that threatens them, and, borne on the wings of their desire to defend their faith, their nation, and their king, hurl themselves boldly into the midst of the thousand possible deaths that await them. These are perilous actions— that are ordinarily ventured, and it is honor, glory, and advantage to attempt them despite the many obstacles and dangers. But the one you say you wish to attempt and put into effect will not win you the glory of God or great riches or fame among men. Even if the outcome is as you desire, you will not be more content, more wealthy, more honored than you are now. And if it is not you will find yourself in the greatest misery imaginable. Then it will be to no avail to think that no one is aware of the misfortune that has befallen you. Your knowing will be enough to make you suffer and grieve. As confirmation of this truth, I want to recite for you a stanza written by the famous poet Luis Tancillo, at the end of the first part of his The Tears of St. Peter, which says... There grows grief and there grows shame in Peter when the day has dawned. And though he sees no one is near, he feels a deep shame for his sin. For a great heart will be moved to shame, even if unseen, when it transgresses. Shame, though seen by naught but earth and sky. In similar fashion, you will not escape sorrow even if it is secret. Instead, you will weep constantly, if not tears from your eyes, then tears of blood from your heart, like those shed by the simple doctor who, as our poet recounts, agreed to the test of the goblet, while the prudent and more rational Reynaldos refused. Although this is poetic fiction, it contains hidden moral truths worthy of being heeded and understood and imitated, especially if, in light of what I am going to say to you now, you come to realize the magnitude— "'of the error you wished to commit. "'Tell me, Anselmo, "'if heaven, or good luck, "'had made you the possessor and legitimate owner "'of a fine diamond, "'whose worth and value satisfied every jeweler who saw it, "'and all of them were of one opinion, "'and said in one voice that in value, size, and purity, "'it was all that such a stone could be, "'and you believed this as well, "'having no knowledge to the contrary, "'would it be reasonable for you to take that diamond?' "'and place it between an anvil and a hammer, "'and by dint of powerful blows "'test if it was as hard and fine as they said. "'Moreover, in the event you did this, "'and the stone withstood so foolish a test, "'it would not for that reason gain in value or fame, "'but if it shattered, which is possible, "'wouldn't everything be lost? "'Yes, certainly, "'and its owner would be thought a fool by everyone.' Then understand, Anselmo, my friend, that Camilla is a fine diamond, both in your estimation and in that of others. And there is no reason to put her at risk of shattering, for even if she remains whole, she cannot become more precious than she is now. And if she fails and does not resist, consider how you would feel without her, and how correctly you would blame yourself for having been the cause of her ruination and your own. For there is no jewel in the world as valuable as a chaste and honorable woman. And women's honor consists entirely of the good opinion others have of them. Since you know that the good opinion people have of your wife is as high as it can be, why do you want to cast doubt upon this truth? Look, my friend, woman is an imperfect creature, and one should not lay down obstacles where she can stumble and fall. Instead, one should remove them and clear all impediments from her path so that she may run easily and quickly to reach the perfection she lacks, which consists in being virtuous. Naturalists tell us that the ermine is an animal with pure white fur. And when hunters want to trap it, they use this trick. Knowing the places where it customarily travels and can be found, they obstruct those places with mud and then they beat the bushes and drive it toward that spot, and when the ermine reaches the mud it stops and lets itself be captured and caught, rather than pass through the mire and risk soiling and losing the whiteness that it values more than liberty and life. The honest and chaste woman is the ermine, and the purity of her virtue is whiter and cleaner than snow. The man who wants her not to lose it, but to keep and preserve it, must treat her in a manner different from the one used with an ermine. He should not place mud before her, I mean the gifts and wooing of importunate lovers, because perhaps, and there is no perhaps about it, she does not have enough virtue and natural strength to overcome and surmount those obstacles by herself. It is necessary to remove them and place before her the purity of virtue and the beauty that lies in a good reputation. In similar fashion, the chaste woman is like a mirror of clear shining glass, liable to be clouded and darkened by any breath that touches it. One must treat the virtuous woman as one treats relics, adore them but do not touch them. One must protect and esteem the chaste woman as one protects and esteems a beautiful garden filled with flowers and roses. Its owner does not permit people to pass through and handle the flowers. It is enough that from a distance, through the iron bars of the fence, they enjoy its fragrance and beauty. Finally, I want to recite for you some verses that have just come to mind. I heard them in a modern play, and I think they are relevant to what we are discussing. A prudent old man was advising the father of a young girl to shelter her, protect her, and keep her secluded. And among many other reasons he mentioned these. Woman is made of fragile glass, but do not put her to the test to see if she will break, for that might come to pass. She is too apt to shatter, and wisdom is surely ended if what can ne'er be mended is put in the way of danger. What I say to you is true, and let us all agree— Wherever Dana'i may be, showers of gold are there too.